We are in Acts 26 today. We've almost finished going through our study in the book of Acts. Paul was arrested last week. He was put in prison. He was accused of a long list of crimes, which included disturbing the peace by starting a riot in the temple. Uh, and he's, a ch- he's charged by these Jewish leaders. And um, the Romans arrest him. They have, they're, they, they're holding on to him. And he keeps babbling about you know, weird religious stuff concerning Jewish customs, or so it must have sounded to his Roman captors. Well, because Paul didn't believe that he get, could get a fair trial, there in Jerusalem. He essentially appeals his case to Rome. Uh, He's he's going up the appellate process. He says, I want to be transferred to, even to have my case adjudicated by Caesar. And in order to get there, he goes through a series of like speech trials along the way. So we've skipped ahead to 26. Today is one such trial. He is standing before King Herod Agrippa, who was the great-grandson of Herod the Great, Festus, uh, a higher Roman administrator in in the system, and then Bernice, who is kind of a Marilyn Monroe-like fashionable and powerful woman. So he's essentially, he's standing before the cultural elites of his day. And, um, so he's on trail. And the Romans, they loved courtroom TV. They, they loved legal proceedings and legalities, much like we do. And so everyone who is anyone has come into the courtroom to watch, you know, the, the trial of the century, these Jews um, against the Apostle Paul. And he begins his defense by talking about Jewish matters. And as I said, Festus who is the um, uh, Roman administrator, he's totally out of his element when it comes to Jewish matters. So he asked King Agrippa to consult because King Agrippa had grown up in the region of Judea around Jerusalem. So he is you know, f- familiar with Judaism. He understood Judaism. And as Agrippa listens to Paul's speech, he is like totally shocked by one simple concept that stands out, and you're going to see it as I read it, but it's, it's this. It's the concept of persuasion. How does an argument, particularly a Christian argument, become persuasive to you, to me, to anybody else? We, we get some elements of that in today's passage, and so um, uh, it's kind of a fun opportunity to consider it from Paul's speech. We're going to jump into the speech in the middle of it, in verse 15, where Paul is once again recounting his conversion. Uh, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He tells that story repeatedly in the book of Acts. And he says in verse 15, I'm the, uh, Then I asked Jesus, like, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now, get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So here he's expanded on his like call to ministry. Verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then uh, to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. 
But God has helped me to this very day. I, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and on the first day rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. <clears throat> At this point, Festus interrupt Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them. After they had left the room, they began saying to one another, This man has not done anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. I think whether you believe in Christianity or disbelieve in Christianity, um, persuasion is multifaceted, and persuasion is usually the result of these three things. It involves the rational, number one, the social, number two, and the existential, or, or a simple way of putting it, you know, the mind, number one, community, number two, and number three, personal experience. And what often happens when we are talking to somebody about our faith, or really this is just broadly the case about anything, and we're trying to persuade someone of something, is we tend to focus on only one of those three elements. So we might be like, listen to my reasons, and listen to my arguments. We present our arguments um, to them and as though like they're supposed to be purely rational <laughs> creature. Um, but like none of us are purely rational. I mean, hardly. Community matters. You know, a lot of times we believe in something or don't believe in something based upon uh, the, the, the peer group that we run with, you know, based upon social connections. And then, of course, the emotional side of things, the personal and existential side of things, that, that certainly matters a whole lot. I mean, we, we all interpret everything through the prism of our own lived experiences. And therefore, arguments are going to always be filter, filtered out or embraced, you know, based on, you know, what we have previously been through and, and how we feel about that thing. So in my opinion, Christianity is most persuasive when, you know, all three elements are engaged. Number one, like when you study the evidence for Jesus and his resurrection, and you really study it, you, you will find it. It's rationally compelling. Number two, when you find a community of Christians who look and sound and act like Jesus, like that's socially compelling. And number three, when you, when you yourself experience the risen Christ, when you have a personal encounter with him as like reality, as really real, um, like the combination of the three, it's a powerful combination indeed. When they all unite together, they make a person um, say, yeah. I'm ready to believe. Likewise, when any one of those three are, are missing or, or largely absent, then 
know, faith is a whole lot more difficult. So let's look at it briefly from the passage. Uh, first off, rational arguments. Rational arguments matter. Rational arguments matter a whole lot less than they did, though, like 300 years ago. I mean, for centuries, everybody followed in the footsteps of, here's a beautiful picture of him, Rene Descartes, the French uh, philosopher. Uh, Descartes, if you know anything about him and his um, philosophical project, you know, he was the ultimate skeptic. He said, I'm going to doubt everything. You know, I'm going to doubt my own existence. I'm going to doubt moral absolutes. I'm, I'm going to even doubt my sensory experience. And so in order to doubt even that, what, he, what did he do? Well, he locked himself up in a Dutch oven, in a dark Dutch oven, and he, in the darkness, he just allowed himself to, to think and think and think. And his grand philosophical experiment was basically premised around the idea, is it possible, is it possible to create a worldview based entirely on reason? And Descartes thought, well, it is. And he had this voila moment. So like, he said, when he was in the oven, I think, he realized, you know, there's one thing I can be absolutely certain about. I cannot doubt that I'm doubting. So I I must be thinking right now. And if I'm thinking, uh, then I must have a mind. And if I have a mind, then I must exist like I'm alive. I'm alive. He discovers that he's alive in the darkness, you know. And he says, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And for centuries, basically, we had uh, that as a worldview to persuade people. It, it was to make a sound, rational argument in the, the hopes and expectations that people will then believe. Um, <clears throat> is that the worldview that we're operating in today? <laughs> Certainly not. And it doesn't work that well today. Um, you know, the pendulum has swung in the entirely opposite direction. And now... Um, you know, some people say we're still in post-modernity. Others say we passed post-modernity. But let's just assume, for the argument's sake, we're in post-modernity. Um, we, we maintain that all knowledge is socially constructive. Everybody basically believes whatever it is their cultural of origin tells them to believe. There are no absolute, certainly no absolute truths, truths except for that being <laughs> the absolute truth. Um, and, and, and in today, you know, you'd have to say, what matters more, reason, logic, or emotions? I mean, the answer is, like, definitely emotions. Most of our thinking and decision-making is, is, is downright emotivism. <laughs> um, what we feel to be true is what is true. At least it's true for us, and that's what we act upon. You'll notice um, Paul, he, he does engage the emotions, but he, he's he's not afraid to make a rational argument, is he? No, he, he actually centers his rational argument on the resurrection of Jesus from the Bible. And so in his speech, I didn't give you the whole speech, but in it, he argues simply that there is a resurrection from the dead, that he had met the resurrected Jesus alive on the road to Damascus, that Jesus' resurrection was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures, And Jesus had commissioned him to go out to all the rest of the world with this good news, to lead people out of darkness into light. Well, you look at Festus' response in verse 24. I mean, Festus, he basically says, Paul, you're nuts. He roars at the top of his voice. Your great learning has turned you into a maniac. Like when a Roman administrator hears Paul talking about resurrection in the Bible, um, it just had to sound cuckoo to him, like you're crazy. 
Then in verse 25, Paul says, well, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words, or what I am saying is true and reasonable. Then verse 26, um, he turns to King Agrippa, and he says, "Uh, for the king knows about the things that I'm saying and I'm speaking boldly about. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped the king's notice, because it it was not done in a corner. Now, that's an interesting phrase. What is he talking about there? It was not done in a corner. What was not done in a corner? Jesus was not done (laughs) in a corner. Like, Jesus' life, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, his sermons, his healings, his, his exorcisms. As I said earlier, Agrippa grew up around Jerusalem in the region of Judea. He, he was there. He, he would have at least heard about it. He would have, there have been hundreds and hundreds of healings that Jesus performed and teachings and, and you know, sermons. And so notice verse 28, how Agrippa replies. He doesn't say that Paul is out of his mind. He says, <clears throat> Paul, do you think that in such a short time, you can persuade me to become a Christian. Um, that, friends, that is actually a concession. Um, he, he's not pushing back on the um, evidential uh, uh, level. He's not pushing back against the arguments. What's, I think, just really remarkable about this speech is that the Apostle Paul, 20 years after the events that taken place, was able to look a man who had lived at that time and place look him in the eye and say, you know I'm not crazy. You know, you know that there is substantial evidence for what I'm talking about. Like, you may not believe it, but it's something you know enough about to know that you can't just uh, laugh it off. And that was his case. I think it's very important um, also to realize that he is not making a case for, you know, generic arguments for God. He is making the case for, you know, witnesses to Jesus himself. Um, like, what does is, what is God sound like? God sounds like Jesus. Um, what, is, what does God look like? He looks like Jesus. What does God think like? He thinks like Jesus. Like, when, when, when you have a picture of God in your mind, is that what is immediately called up? Like, the face, the voice the thoughts, the expressions of Jesus, because that, that is the truth. You know, for what it's worth, there are really strong rational historical evidences for Jesus' life, um, both in Christian sources and in non-Christian sources, um, and his teaching and his death, and, and I think even of his resurrection. What I really believe is that we, we just need more of Jesus uh, making his rational arguments to us. I was talking to Carlos before the service. We were talking about books that we're reading right now, and and this is a new one that I I bought just a few days ago. I was kind of holding off to buy it because it's kind of expensive being a hardback, but it's called The Gospel of Jesus, The Four Gospels in a Single Complete Narrative, and it's, it's what it sounds like. It takes all four Gospels and puts them together in kind of a chronological reading. Um, and what I just, what I, the reason I wanted to buy this was, I, I mean, I read the Old Testament every day. I read the Psalms. I read the prophets. I read Paul's letters. 
But I just came to the point um, in my spiritual formation that I realized that the food I need every single day is the food of Jesus. To, to, to hear his words, to rehearse his stories, to allow his kingdom to influence um, my values and my way of thinking. And so, like, my goal, I don't know, it's probably overly ambitious, <laughs> but my goal is, like, for the rest of my life to not let a single day pass where I am not reading something um, from one of the four Gospels from the life of Jesus. And when you do that, you're just allowing his r- way of thinking, his arguments, um, like he'll even make arguments for his own resurrection. He's making that to you, to convince you. Um, and I, you know, I, I need to move on. I, I do have a high degree of confidence that if people are given the arguments for Jesus and they consider those with an open mind, um, Jesus' resurrection in particular, they will find it like rationally plausible. So then why? Why doesn't um, everybody just convert and become a Christian? Uh, simply by examining the arguments. Well, there's something even probably more important for persuasion, and that's number two, the social side of it, <clears throat> community. People tend to believe the, th- the things, uh, the same things that the people they are around tend to believe. Um, people tend to believe the things that the people they most admire believe. Um, we're, we're social creatures, we believe the arguments of the community we're a part of, and we believe the arguments of the group that we want to be a part of, and we tend to actually believe the arguments of people who we like the best or we have the most admiration for. And that, that's true of religion. That's true of politics. That's true of kind of like anything. It's true across the board that so much of our knowledge, so much of our persuasion is ultimately um, socially, deeply socially influenced, if not constructed. Um, so here's one of the things, one of the phrases that we have said as we try to plant this church. We've said it probably not frequently enough, but belonging usually precedes believing. And, and with that in mind, we've, tr- we've strived to, I don't know, create a space where those who are outside of our group could come in and, and experience the love and the welcome of Jesus and maybe, like, find a group of people that was caring enough and kind enough and, and Jesus-like enough that it would counteract some or, or many of the bad experiences they have had with other churches and other Christians. Because, you know, you talk to anybody today, and a lot of people, they don't believe because they've had really bad experiences with the church and with other Christians. Um, interesting I guess there's nothing new under the sun. When Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche was asked why he rejected Christianity, you know, the famous um, atheistic philosopher, he answered, uh, because, quote, I never saw the members of my father's church enjoying themselves. Um, yeah, and oftentimes our, our, our communal um, knowledge, like we'll have bad experiences that are connected to our family, our family's religious um, Origin and that just ends up like baking our hearts and making faith very, very difficult. This is slightly a rabbit trail, but I came across it this week and I thought it was really interesting. So there was a 35 year study that they did um, that analyzed like how frequently what do parents transfer their faith to their children? 
And what are some of the common denominators of transference or lack thereof? And what they found, so 35-year study, being pretty substantial, they found that 68% of children who have a close relationship with their father ended up holding on to their father's religion. But what they also found was that like a fervent faith can't compensate for an absentee dad. And so the author of the study said, a fa- quote, a father who is an, um, I'll find it here, a father who is an exemplar, like a pillar of the church, but doesn't provide warmth uh, and affirmation to his kid, does not have kids who want to follow him in faith. Um, like the, the close relationship of a father who has real faith, who really loves his children, um, is, is kind of a, one of the magical ingredients. Now, Paul doesn't mention the communal social aspect of persuasion in the speech, uh, but I would just point out to you that it's found throughout the rest of the Bible, and, and most of the New Testament is kind of built off this idea that the, the New Testament community would be filled with the Spirit, and this loving community, uh, this community that cares for the poor, this community that cares about justice, would be so powerfully influential that others would come to faith. <clears throat> you know, the highest praise that anybody can give to a church is when they say something along these lines, like, hey, you'll never believe this. I met a group of Christians who were actually like Jesus. You know, I thought Christians were judgmental and hateful and bigoted and uh, dismissive of the poor, but what I actually found were people who were genuine and generous and hospitable and kind and care about justice, who care about the vulnerable. When you, when you combined like social credibility of that nature with the intellectual uh, credibility of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, um, like when you have a community that, it, that itself embodies the kingdom values of Jesus, then that makes like a very persuasive combination. And, you know, I'll just say this before moving quickly to point number three. Um, <clears throat> I'm excited to continue like this journey with us to try and create the kind of community I just described. Um, I think we would all agree that that kind of community is really needed. And um, I'm just, I also want to say I'm very open to your ideas and your insights, your passions, the ways that you think we could better embody that kind of community to South Scottsdale. Um, I just think it's a very much a, a group project, and I, I would love for us to like continue to think about that and, and press forward with that. Number three, so this is the third part, you know, personal, existential, and emotional. Uh, it's easy to find this one in the passage. I mean, Paul, he says to Festus and Agrippa and Bernice, like, I met this, I met Jesus. He personally appeared to me on the Damascus Road, uh, he demanded to know why I was persecuting him. I saw him in his glory. Uh, he completely changed me. And Paul just basically, he shares his story. He says, like, this is how I'm different by virtue of meeting Jesus. And, I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? Like, if you have met Jesus you usually will have stories to tell about those encounters, like what, what he has done for you and how he has changed you and why he is precious to you. And, um, I, and I realize we go through seasons in life 
where Jesus feels distant to us. He feels absent from, from us. But I tell you what, it, this is where journaling can be really helpful. I mean, you can feel like you're making no progress in the Christian life, and then you go back and read a journal entry that you made like five, six, seven years ago, and you're just, you're dumbfounded. They're like, oh, that's what I was dealing with back then? Like, I've come so far, <laughs> actually. I may, I may not feel like I've gotten very far or as far as I wish I could go, but I mean, wow, Christ really has done some significant transformative work inside of me, and you, you sense that. Yeah, so uh, the personal, personally experiencing the risen Christ is, is critically important, um, and then not personally experiencing him um, is also critically important. Um, I, I think of it more like a three-leg stool um, or a three-cord rope, if we could go to that picture. So, yeah, the three-leg stool, you've got the rational, the, existen- the, the social, and the existential. Or, or in the case of a, th- a three-corded rope, similarly, um, when you have all three and they're working together, that is something powerful. When you, when you only have one of the three, or, or even two of the three, things become a little um, sketchy. So, you know, I'd always follow Tim Keller's Twitter feed when he was alive. I still follow it, because um, there are always gems there. Um, and what I realized one day is he was making the case for, for the three-leg stool, or the, the three-cord rope. He said, the way I've come to believe that Jesus bodily rose from the dead is, number one, I've looked at the historical evidence, which is surprisingly powerful. Number two, I've sensed Jesus' actual presence in my life and on my heart repeatedly over the years in ways I cannot explain away, even during stretches when he seems absent. And number three, I've been in great Christian communities that believed in and lived out Jesus' resurrection in remarkable ways. And he says, you know, that's, that's really what has made my faith strong and resilient. He said, for instance, it would not break my faith if, say, under number three, I discovered a significant number of hypocritical and abusive Christians, which I have, by the way, um, because he said, um, you know, I've experienced plenty who are not like that, but, you know, I, I've known Christ existentially, and, and I've studied, and, and I know the arguments are strong. In other words, what he was trying to say, I don't know if I'm doing a job of communicating it, is if, if you attacked one leg of the stool, um, he said, I have strength in the other two. And I, had strength, I have even strength in the one that's attacked. And he goes on, my conclusion is that at least some folks who go from like firm active believers to deconversion, complete disbelievers, um, and do so when they become disillusioned with the church, they'd rested their belief only in number three, or they only really had that, that one strong leg of the stool. And so when that became flimsy, like everything ended up, um, uh, you know, crashing. Does that make sense? Like, you know, I think we see imbalances in the three, well, on a personal level, but even on a denominational level, some denominations, you know, they'll focus on the mind and the reason, uh, the reasons far more than it does 
They do this, the community or the personal experience, the existential. Likewise, uh, uh, some denominations focus a whole lot on the personal experience and very little on, on the mind. Um, we, we simply need to try to pursue a, uh, a, a stability, a balance between the three. And we need to do that in our lives. I mean, if you're one of those people who you know the arguments and you've been in good community, but you haven't really felt like you've met the risen Christ, then you need to keep asking him to show himself to you in that way. Um, And likewise, uh, if you're in one of the other three camps. I need to finish. So at the end of Paul's speech, this is how his audience responds, verses 30 through 32. Uh, The king rose, and with him, the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them, after they had left the room, began saying to one another, this man is not doing, um, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment, Agrippa said to Festus. This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Did you notice, they're talking still about legalities and, and, and what he, you know, how the court should rule. There's no personal searching. It's completely impersonal. They're they're talking about technicalities. What I would say to to you, if you're here, if you're listening, if you're not sure you're a believer, is take the step to make it personal. Um, Ask God the hard questions. Work it out. Um, Think through it. uh, Pursue it. Pursue it until you find an answer. You know what I, I hear sometimes when um, I talk with people who are thinking about coming into the faith, they're, they're like, yeah, but I need to be 100% certain. Uh, I want to be certain. Well, like if you were an employer and you were trying to hire somebody and you use that same standard, you want to be absolutely certain this is the right person for the job before you hire them. Like, good luck. You're never going to hire anybody. You know, no, what do you do? Well, you, you use your reason. You think about, like, does, you look at their resume, and you check their references, and you interview them, and you make them take tests, and you, you use your reason to get yourself to the place where you can look in a candidate and say, yeah, probably, probably that's the right person. Um, you know, ultimately, whenever you're dealing with people, you're, you're going to have to take on risk. You're going to have to, like, personally commit and bring them on. And the same thing happens the uh, same thing happens with marriage. If you a- want to be absolutely certain you're marrying the right person before you take your marriage vows, you won't marry people <laughs> because people are risky. Well, just never forget that Jesus is a person too. Like, Jesus is not an idea. I mean, he is, he's, the, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's a, he's a king. He's a person. And so look at the evidence for his resurrection. Then look for a community um, and are these people the real deal? Are they gracious and loving and forgiving and accommodating like Jesus? And then, like, emotionally, just look what, look what he has done for you. Look at him, see him dying on the cross, and ask the Holy Spirit to show you the risen Christ and to make it personal. You know, Agrippa said to Paul, Are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? And Paul replied, Whether it's easy or difficult, not only you, but all who listen to me today, I hope to persuade. And, and I pray that we would be given the power of the Holy Spirit to, um, to persuade others in our, in our, uh, in, in our relationships 
about the reality of Christ. Amen.